time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Back to the Cold War Show, episode 23. Hey, buddy. How are you? Hello, comrade. (laughs) As we will see in this episode, I'm not the only person who does a very bad Churchill impersonation. We'll get to that. Or maybe next episode. One of these episodes. Who fuck knows? (laughs) I think we will get to the Yalta conference sometime around 2018 2019 uh we will eventually get to that yeah early 2019 there's just so many great stories to tell i I don't what's the fucking hurry we we thought when we when we you're going somewhere when we started planning this series we the way that we had planned it out we were going to get to yalta about episode three right it's now episode 23 and we still we're just getting we're just touching on yalta (laughs) 20 took us 20 uh, 22 hours or 21 hours longer and we're not going to get there for a while yet anyway so so for those of you planning your own podcast don't try to work everything out just wing it go with it you know whatever hey can i just do just a disclaimer real quick for those who write in saying that we're anti-american or whatever i'm certainly not anti-american i'd rather be an american here with all our imperfections than most other countries but anyway i don't think that we're anti capitalist maybe i shouldn't speak for cam but i just heard something on the news today just another example of uh things that that does piss me off about capitalism um i think it was roughly 20 years ago to this day that fracking was discovered invented whatever the proper term is uh term is there was a gentleman who was about to lose his job who worked uh, for a drilling company and he came up with this and someone let him try it and obviously they've made trillions of dollars and they've made a lot of energy a lot of natural gas out of the ground it turns out that that man didn't get a slice of the cut he didn't get a bonus he didn't get a thank you card the only thing he got was to be able to keep his job a little longer because they were able to come up with something where they could get more natural gas out of the air out of the ground so at the very least you would think that someone who came up with this even though he was a common worker would be able to appreciate just the tiniest sliver of the pie that he helped create but because he didn't own the means of production Brother didn't get shit, okay? So I'm just throwing that. I just pissed me off when I heard that today. Cam, do with that what you will. If anything at all, you don't have to. I just had to get that off my chest. When did you say this happened? Uh, th- this was about 20 years ago today. It was it was on, on the news. They were talking to the guy who discovered this, who was, who was basically just trying to keep his job. Uh... I think our last clip, our last show was a bit clip heavy. I might try and tone it down yeah. this show. Nah. Oh well, thanks, thanks it. for that little rant. Um, like yeah. I'm not anti-American or even anti-capitalist. I'm not anti-anything. I just think that everything has flaws, and there, there are good things right. and bad things about every idea, every 
system of social uh, socio-economic cooperation, every religion, every philosophy, everything has positives and negatives. And it's our job uh, to be honest about those, think about yeah. them deeply, try and work out how to improve them, try and minimize the negatives, accentuate the positives. Got to. Oh, there's a song about that. I don't know, fuck, I'm not going there. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, let's get on with this because we've got right. a lot of shit to talk Please. about spies. Shit time. So at the end of the last episode, we talked about the Cambridge Five. Um, yes. Philby, McLean, Burgess, Blunt and Cancross. Probably the most famous and most successful sp- non-fictional spies in all of history. Um, now, I said to Chrissy the other day, you heard of Kim Philby, Guy Burgess? She said, nope. So, but maybe it was a thing. You had to be around, maybe. I mean, they don't get talked about a lot, I think, these days. But if you were around in the 70s and the 80s, these were well-known names. I remember when Philip Knightley's book on Philby came out, I think in the mid-80s. I remember reading it not long after it came out. It was, it was, there was, it was, these names were fairly well-known back then. If you're younger and you haven't heard of these people, don't feel bad. I'm not making fun of you, but uh, they right. were extremely successful, as we will see. Now, they were called the Cambridge Five because they uh, all were recruited as Soviet spies during their time at the University of Cambridge, England, of course, in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Now, Philby, let's we're going to do a bit of a bio on a couple of the main guys here. Um and the reason we're doing this is because they did play a role during World War II and before that, as we'll see, in passing information to the Soviets. Uh, this became very important during the Yalta Conference and they uh, and the beginning of the Cold War. The These guys played a massively important role in uh, helping Stalin understand the strengths and weaknesses of his supposed allies. Um and and I figured, you know, when Ray and I were planning these episodes, I said, well, look, we're going to have to talk about these guys at some stage. Let's just take a break and talk about them now. So when we mention them as we go on over the next 10 or 20 right. episodes, people will know a little bit about who they were and why they're important. Yeah. Philby was born Harold Adrian Russell Philby, nicknamed Kim. Damn. Why? <laughs> Ray? Uh, he, his, his dad wanted a girl. No. Why? No. Oh, I'm sorry, because his father was a member of the Indian Civil Service. I imagine uh, being over there, uh, run your uh, Kipling, that kind of thing. But I'm only only guessing. I don't know. Yes, Rudyard. 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 Rudyard Kipling, uh, famous British uh, author, wrote a book, Nobel Prize winning book, uh, in about 1901, called Kim... It's about the orphan son of an Irish soldier uh, and an Irish mother who both die in poverty. And he goes to India and, you know, builds a life for himself there. So he was nicknamed Kim after that kid. Uh, Although Kim in the book is uh, the poorest of the poor. And Mm -hmm. uh, Philby's father was a very high-ranking member of the Indian Civil Service. So one of the things you will find about all these guys in the Cambridge Five is they all came from fairly privileged 
uh, yes. upper class backgrounds. Now, you might ask yourself, why would somebody from a privileged upper class British background become a communist and work for the Soviets? It's a very good question. I'm glad you asked. We will explore <laughs> that as we go. Now, Philby was born in 1912 in the Punjab province of India. Where is the Punjab, mm-hmm. Ray? Um, somewhere in India. Uh, yes. Keep go- Southern keep, part? Keep going. The s- southwest? Do you, do you, no, I don't know. Do you need to call a friend? I do. <laughs> ring, ring, ring. Hey, Cam. Yeah. <laughs> Where's the Punjab? Uh, the Punjab, is, we, you should know this. We've talked about this on Alexander, man, like half a yeah. dozen times. The Punjab is the very northern tip of Oh, shit, I wouldn't even India. close. If, if you think of India and Pakistan together, the old British Empire oh, version sure. of India, as, uh, uh, as a human, if you anthropomorphize it, the Punjab is its erect penis when it uh, wakes up in the morning. <laughs> it's its morning wood. It just kind of sticks Not up. Your 50. It's like a tent. Uh-huh. It's like a little right. wood tent that sticks up at the top of the Punjab. It's now sort of northern India and eastern Pakistan, basically. So that's where gotcha. Philby was born. I always love it when I get yes. Uber drivers and I say, where are you from? They go from Punjab. And I go, oh, oh Punjab. Let me tell you what I know about Punjab. It's like morning wood tent. They always love that. Um, they drive a little faster. I had a, I had a Sikh driver uh, last week or the week before, and we got talking about the Sikhs and Indira Gandhi and Mahatma Gandhi and the Pun. He was from the Punjab. Anyway, the things that making podcasts enables me to do, have better conversations with a, ra- a wider range nice. of uh, Uber drivers. Anyway, he was the That's son of St. John Philby. Now, did you read up on St. John? He was a fascinating character. No, I just know that he was a part of the, the civil service and that he was an advisor uh, to the king of Saudi Arabia. But no, I really didn't cover him too much. Well, he was uh, a, an author and an Orientalist uh, mm. who converted to Islam and, Ooh, as you say, became him. a very senior advisor. Yeah, like that guy in the last episode. He could have got burned at the, the stake Jew. a few hundred yeah. years later, yeah. earlier. Um, he got uh, so he become so he could become an advisor to King Ibn Saud of Saudi Arabia, um, and he actually advised the king that Hitler would win the Second World War, and recommended that the Saudis disinvest from Britain and broker a deal with U.S. oil interests instead. Oh. So nice. betraying Britain was kind of a family hobby for the Philbies. <laughs> uh, now, it turns out he was right that the Second World War definitely was the uh, turning point of the British Empire. It was the beginning of the right. end of the British Empire. Not so much right with uh, the whole bit about Hitler, um, <laughs> but brokering deals with US oil Oops. interests. Uh, uh, you know, we, we've seen the long-term uh, ramifications of that, so much so as people who've been following this may know that a lot of information has come out recently from the 9-11 report that had been redacted for the last, whatever, 10 years, that uh, the 9-11 hijackers were, we already knew that they were mostly Saudis, supported mm-hmm. funded by the Saudis, uh, by the Saudi government, representatives of the Saudi government. And there was recently a, a class action building 
in the US by the families of the 9-11 victims who were going to sue the Saudi government uh, for their involvement in 9-11. And only, I think, last week, Obama um, vetoed their ability to sue the Saudi government because it would damage US-Saudi relationships and interests. So we don't give a fuck about the 9-11 victims' families if it could interfere... With our relay, we will invade Afghanistan. Right. We will inv- who didn't do this? Who didn't do it? We will invade Iraq. <laughs> I mean, maybe this. they trained in Afghanistan and maybe they got some funding right. from nine eleven. But we will invade that. We will kill Bin Laden. Uh, we will invade Iraq that had nothing at all to fucking do with it. But the guys, the Saudi guys, that actually, according to the U.S. government's own nine eleven investigation were instrumental in supporting it. We're not going to do it. We won't even let you sue them because it could right. fuck up our oil interests in Saudi Arabia. And the Saudi government, through their um, uh, sovereign funds, own <laughs> fuck ton of US infrastructure now, too. So anyway, fuck, yeah. fuck man. That's... Uh, that's yeah, that's that's, that's the way the world, my friend. It's not about capitalism. Yeah, yeah it's not about It's not about justice. It's it. not about integrity. It's about commercial interests. No. Let's. Yeah, we, but when the, the guys you want to fuck with holds the deeds to so many of your properties, yeah, you got to be careful pissing them off. Uh, and that's sad, but a reality of the world. Get used to it. So, anywho, uh, back to the Philby. So, in his early teens, Kim spent some time in the with the Bedouin. In the desert of Saudi Arabia, learning how to be turned into a man. Now, how do you? I know you wanted to talk about this uh, initiation ceremonies, but that was on what the Caesar show. I think you wanted to talk the about the Caesar, yeah, with Augustus and the and the Roman, you know, the the young Roman boys of the nobility, that kind of stuff. Yeah, we haven't done that uh, yet. No, we I should th- do that. We should make a note. Yeah, to yeah, do yeah, that. yeah. Absolutely. So, do you have any notes on? Uh, how a Bedouin tribe or the Bedouin would turn a boy into a man. I did not go down that rabbit hole. No, did you stick him in the desert for, for a while? No, no, yeah. we, we can get to it. We can, we can cover I, it on the, uh, I mean, show. I kind of had in my mind, uh, um, Lawrence, I was going to say Alexander of Arabia. I'm thinking, no, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> That's not no, right. He did plan to go to Arabia, as our Alexander Yo, he had he had died. That was what he was going to do next before he died, uh, tragically. Yep. Well, maybe tragically, depending on your point of view. Suddenly. For them. Anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I don't know. But yeah, I thought of, sort of thought of Lawrence of Arabia. Maybe he had to travel through the Nefud Desert just with a camel. Um, right. Fuck, I love that movie, by the way. Um, anyway, at age of 16, he won a scholarship to Trinity College, Cambridge, where he read history and economics, graduated in 1933 with a degree in economics. After he graduated, he was introduced by his tutor in economics at Cambridge to the World Federation for the Relief of the Victims of German Fascism in Paris. That was a group that was trying to help out. Um, yeah. They were actually uh, that was there were one of several fronts though operated by a German communist by the name of Willy Munzenberg, mm-hmm. who was uh, mm-hmm. a member of the Reichstag who had fled to France in 1933 as Hitler came to power. Yeah, I, I read a little bit about him. He was yeah he was a German communist who obviously fell out of uh, love with communism because of everything Stalin was doing with the purge, purges. So he was anti-fascist, 
and anti-Stalinist, but you know, he's trying to help the people who are leaving Germany. Sadly, he is going to be killed by the French to appease Nazi Germany. So even though he runs away from them, he's not able to get away from their long, long rather reach. Uh, the French do it to try to, to appease. And so he, all of his attempts to help people fleeing Nazi Germany, it's not going to end so well for him. Ooh. Ooh. So he's... He's a Marxist, but he's not a communist anymore. He's certainly not a Stalinist. He was just trying to help people, and he paid the ultimate price for it. Mm. And as we're going to see, a lot of these spies, they don't start out communists. They're certainly not Stalinists. They just start out reading Marx. They want to help people. They want to help the the middle class, which until some of them get to college and hear a speech by Clement Attlee, don't even know the, the average person in Britain are suffering. We'll get to that later. But again, like you were saying, a lot of these guys are coming from the upper echelons of economic, socioeconomic society. They don't know a lot of what's going on, and it certainly hasn't affected their life. They're going to get a rude awakening, and that's going to help them want to help their average man and thus turn to Marx and read his books and then and then go from there. Yeah, and I'll, we'll explore later on their reasons yeah. for becoming communists because it's interesting. I've got some of their own quotes and their own speeches to support that. So anyway, back to Philby in Vienna. He's uh, working to aid refugees from Nazi Germany and he meets a lady by the name of Litzi Friedman. Litzi, I like that name, Litzi. She was a yeah. young Austrian communist of hungarian jewish origins they they fall in love they get married in 1934 she got him involved in using his british passport to run money and clothes to refugees from the nazis noble and then a friend of hers in london edith tudor hart who was a soviet agent approached the couple about working for soviet intelligence and in 1934, a Soviet spy, Arnold Deutsch, who used the alias Otto, travelled to London and recruited Philby and his wife. Wait, okay, so let's stop here. So that's when Philby says, no, 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 that would be wrong. I can't <laughs> betray my country. Yeah. yeah, no, he didn't. And he was, um, and, and I'll... You know, I think we'll drill down on this as we go. Um, but for the time okay. being, uh, at least later in life, all of these guys basically said they believed the British Empire was in decline. They believed mm -hmm. that the Soviet Union was going to be the next dominant power. They obviously wanted to see the Nazis stopped. They believed the Soviet right. Union was going to be the world's superpower. And uh, they believed fundamentally in Marxism, uh, and they also believed the Soviet Union was going to dominate, and they wanted to get in at the ground floor, basically, of sure. the new empire. But they were fundamentally committed communists, um, even though they may have had some de uh, misgivings at various stages about the way the Soviet Union was handling it. Uh, mm -hmm. They believed it was the representative of Marxism, and uh, they wanted to be part of that. Fascinating again to me that these guys that were born blue bloods uh, right. believe, and, and, and as we'll see as we go on, uh, mixed in the highest circles of British aristocracy, uh, believed that the British Empire was in decline. Rightly, and they were right, at least about that. Um, and, and the Soviet Union did go on to become a superpower, so they were right about that as well. Um, so they were right about a lot of things. Good for them. So I imagine the first thing they have to do is change how the world sees them so they can start being effective uh, gatherers of information. 
Yeah, so the first instructions they're given by Otto, who's you know working for the NKVD, the secret police, Soviet secret police, is instructs Philby, and it's the same with the rest of the guys, to stop looking and acting and sounding like a communist. You can't be an effective communist spy if you look like a communist, basically. Right. Yeah. And in fact, with Philby, he said he had to break off all of his contacts with the British communist community and the the Viennese and all of these sorts of uh, associations that he had. In fact, he should develop a new political image as being a right winger, even a Nazi sympathizer. I've got a quote here. It says, he must become to all outward appearances a conventional member of the very class he was committed to opposing. Deutsch told him the anti-fascist movement needs people who can enter into the bourgeoisie. Now, I just have to ask, so so he's a communist, he wants to, he believes in Marx, he wants to help the average person, which is one thing. I mean, he's having, you know, decent intentions or whatever, if, if that's your political leanings, but to literally fake his waking hours so he can be more effective at it and actually, because he's faking it, get into positions where he can really start doing some good spying, I would imagine that would be, I don't know, for for a lot of people, that would be a really hard thing to do unless you really believed in the cause. And that's something you were willing to sacrifice and cut off ties and friendships, especially a lot of the ones in Cambridge, because as we're going to see during the 1930s, Cambridge was left-leaning and went even further left-leaning. We'll get to that later. But I know for Burgess, this is really going to be hard for him. He was already potentially an alcoholic, but he's going to have very uh, hard time with this. He's going to have uh, fits of being miserable and try to feel better with alcohol and sex and stuff like that. So I just wonder how hard it was for Philby to literally fake being the type of person that he disliked. I think it was very hard for all of these guys, and it's got to be incredibly stressful uh, being a, yeah. being a double agent. And we'll see some of the uh, long-term impacts and effects it had on these guys as we go forward. Now, one of the things that uh, Otto gave him when he became a spy was the new Minox sub-miniature camera. Now, you've probably seen these things in old James Bond movies and spy movies. These right. relatively tiny cameras. They're like uh, a long, thin, uh, silver shape. You sort of push them together and pull them apart to change to the next uh, oh, negative. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So I read a little bit about the Minox. Um, fascinating. It was first conceived in 1922 by a German, Walter Zapp, Z-A-P-P, which is probably the greatest surname ever. Zapp! Um, I would have called my camera the Zapp, the Zappmeister. The Zapper. He's, he invented yeah. the world's first miniature camera and his name was Zapp. I mean... Insta-Zapp. Insta-Zapp. <laughs> Zappagram. <laughs> Um, it was finally produced in 1936 at a Latvian factory. It was produced Hold there for Zapchat. Z- Zapchat. Uh, fuck, go register that right now. Zap- that's our next <laughs> business idea. Um, uh, just coming up with Sorry. words, domains that involve Zap. That's what we're going to do for the next year. Um, yeah, so it was uh, redesigned after World War II uh, and produced in Germany, ironically. But Zapp originally envisioned the film to be required, something that could be used by everyone, even if you only had a very little knowledge. It was designed to be like a, a, right. a simple, easy, point-and-click point shoot 
small enough to be carried in your pocket. It was it was brilliant. It was genius. Unfortunately, it uh, was very expensive to produce. Ah. So it became sort of more of a luxury item initially than something that everybody could afford. But uh, I, they're super cool. I, I absolutely want one. I've been wanting to buy one of these things for years, man. I reckon they'd be super. I just want to, you know, be out in public and pull it out of my pocket. Yeah. Just, you know, take photos of files and newspapers and shit. That's and, right. Yeah. You flipping through the files. You find F. You pull up F. You take some pictures, push it back down, look behind your shoulder. The security guard goes by and then you move on. Yeah. Sorry. I, I kind of got lost in the film there. Anyway. Yeah. So he gives him a, he gives him a really expensive camera and shows him how to use it and off he goes or is there more? Yeah, uh, no, he gives them that. He uh, starts to teach Philby. Oh, he gave him a code name, Sean uh, Shen. Uh, he gave, he starts to teach Philby how to become a spy, and it's it's ah. it's basically you know um, we we need a um, what do you call those scenes? <laughs> a montage. A montage. Yeah. If you're going to storm Kim Jong-il's palace single-handed, we have to make you a complete soldier in very little time. How are we going to do that? I think I know just what we need. Okay, so... <laughs> Love that shit. Love that shit. Chrissy, Chrissy and I sing that every time we see a montage in every film. <laughs> you can't not, right? Nice. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so he teaches him how to be a spy. One of his first jobs as a spy is to right. spy on his own father, St. John Get Philby. Out of here. Yeah, no, I will not. I will not go anywhere. <laughs> uh, I will not. <clears throat> He, uh, they believe that he has important secret documents, so he has to go and photograph with his Minox St. Right. John's secret documents. The other... Can I ask a question? Yeah. I'm sorry, just a quick question. I, I couldn't help... This is me being paranoid, thinking like a Soviet for a second. I mean, yeah, so this guy says he wants to be a spy. He's willing to do it. You teach him the stuff. You give him a cool camera. But shouldn't you test him? First, I mean, if he's willing to spy on his own father, even if he gets good documents or not, or whatever, but the fact that he's willing to do that, isn't that almost like a a test to see how sincere he is that if he'll spy on his father? Yeah. That's just me thinking outside the box, but I just kind of picture them going, Give him, let's, let's really find out how sincere he is. Yeah, that, that's a good idea, man. That's what I do. Yeah, well, it's probably part of it. How, you know, what are you willing to do? Are you willing to spy on your own father? By the way, there is a minute you can get a Minox camera, uh, one of these spy cameras on eBay in Good Nick uh, for six hundred and forty-five dollars. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I think we should do like a Kickstarter for that and uh, right. buy me one. We'll get two. Wow, right. you can get one of the original uh, ones for two grand on it, two and a half grand on eBay. Damn! Holy shit! Oh, we could just. From, do like some of the Chinese just build one that looks real on the outside and sell it and then disappear. <laughs> yeah. But that's my own personal experience. Yeah. Okay. 1940 genuine Latvian spy camera, genu- genuine leather case and box and owner certificate from 1940. 
That's Impressive. fucking awesome. Can't do anything with it because you can't get film for it. Because and your birthday's coming up, people. It His birthday's is. coming up. That's what That's he wants. That's what I want. Right Minox right. spy camera. Anywho, or an eye touch. Yeah, an eye touch. <laughs> <laughs> I was making fun of Ray early because he got an eye touch for his birthday. Anyway, so Spiny Smile, the other first thing that he had to do was make a list of other people he knew that he thought might join the Soviet cause. And he Mm -hmm. lists seven, including Guy Burgess and Donald McLean, who uh, we will talk about later on. So this is how the Cambridge Five comes together. It starts with Philby and it spreads to these other guys. Mm Mm-hmm. So over the next... That's a lot of spies in one setting. But I'm sorry, please continue. Yeah. Well, and yeah. you know, this shaped the course of uh, 20th century history in, in many ways. So wow. uh, over the next five years, Philby learns to speak Russian and starts working as a journalist. Now, personally, I was surprised. I would think learning to speak Russian would tip, tip you off, yeah. give you away as a spy. When are you going to use it? Obviously, your Soviet handler is going to speak English. Why in the f- do you need to be a Russian speaker? You can't use it on anybody. Again, I just wonder if it's a test of his commitment, but I'm sure the, the Russians who are masters at spying have their own reasons. Yeah, and I guess uh, all of the communications are going to be in code, and as we'll see uh, later yeah. on, uh, that's kind of their undoing. But uh, it's not going to be in, well, it might be in Russian, maybe, I don't know. Anyway, he learned Russian and he became a journalist. Now, in his role as a journalist, he ended up working for the Times, traveled to Berlin and to Spain, where he covered the Spanish Civil War. And at the time, he's working for both Soviet and British intelligence. If, if I can just drill down on that a little bit. Yeah, so when he gets to Spain, he's writing letters and articles about General Franco pretending to be on his side to give it a, a pro-fascist slant. Again, he's trying to use his cover to say that he generally hopes, you know, that the Franco wins. Um, and, and I just thought this was really funny. So what he would do is he would gather information and he would write fake or he would write letters to a fake girlfriend in France that he would. Um, her name was uh, Mademoiselle Dupont. In Paris, and what he would do is he'd put the address on there and send it to France, to Paris. And it turns out the address was for the Soviet embassy in France. So he's writing these things in codes, mails out the letters, and they're going going right to the Soviet embassy in um, Paris. So again, he's getting almost real time information to his Soviet handler. That's pretty impressive considering it's nineteen thirty something. Yeah. And I love the fact that uh, British intelligence say, uh, "Hey, listen." Um you're out there in Spain. How do you feel about yeah. being a spy? He's like us. providing us with information. He's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? I didn't, I didn't do anything. For, oh, for you. Yeah. Oh, no, I'd love to be a spy yeah. For, I shot for you. Oh, right. Dude, what? What were you talking about? Oh, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Don't, what? Look over there. Look. Did I, did I tell you I bought a boat <laughs> recently? Um, <laughs> Look at my camera. So uh, he's working for both Soviet and British intelligence. In 1937... His uh, Soviet handler tries to get him to help assassinate Franco. Yeah. But uh, he doesn't have the stomach for it. And uh, it's a good thing because it plays into his uh, favor later on. In December 1937, uh, a Republican shell uh, hits the front of a car that Philby was traveling in with correspondence from the Associated Press Newsweek and Reuters, all three of them are killed. 
Shit. But Philby only suffers a minor head wound. But as a result of the accident, he's awarded the Red Cross of Military Merit by Franco. Oh, my God. In March of 1938. And this award opens the doors to fascist circles for him. I think it's interesting that the Soviets, as as everyone probably knows, but again, we'll just put this out there. During the Spanish Civil War, the Soviets are backing the the Republicans' uh, government. Uh, The fascists are backing Franco. And uh, it's not going well. Franco's winning because he's got the help of Hitler Mussolini. So the Soviets are thinking about killing him. They want to use Philby. Philby can't go along with it. But again, he ends up almost dying anyway. And like you're, like you said, because he, this almost happens, he gets an award for Franco and suddenly he's the talk of the town. He's the hero as far as the fascists are concerned, as far as general Franco. So now he has access to a lot of people as a journalist, he would not have had access to now. So he almost dies, but something good comes of it between for him and his Soviet handler. Yeah. As a journalist, not to mention as a spy and a spy. Yeah. So he's spies, spying for the Soviets, spying for the British and now is the talk of the town with the fascists in uh, right. Spain, uh, in Madrid. So, Heady days. Yeah, like he's uh, moving, moving on up. <laughs> in uh, moving but, on up. but yeah. Also in 1938, a former Soviet officer in Paris who had defected Mm-mm. to France the previous year because the purges are going on back home. Right, scared. Shitless. He got the fuck out of Dodge. <laughs> Walter Kravitsky. Right. He traveled to the United States uh, and published an account of his time in Stalin's Secret Service. He also testified before the Dies Committee or Diaz Committee that I mentioned in an earlier episode. This was the uh, predecessor to the House Un American Activities Committee, HUAC. Mm-hmm. Uh, he testified about his uh, Soviet espionage activities. And in 1940, he was interviewed by MI5 officers in London, and he mm-hmm. told them that there were two Soviet intelligence agents that had penetrated the Br- British Foreign Office and that a third Soviet intelligence agent had been working as a journalist for a British newspaper during the Civil War in Spain. Damn. But he better watch out. Yeah. No one made any connection to Philby. The British intelligence went, oh, British journalist working during the Civil War in Spain, Spain. giving intelligence. Mm, who, well, who could it couldn't be? possibly be Philby, right? Because he was giving no. us intelligence. It must have been somebody right. else. Kravitsky oh. uh, was shot in a Washington hotel room. Ouch. The following year, on February 10th, 1941, at 9.30 a.m., he was found dead in the Bellevue Hotel in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. by a chambermaid with three suicide notes by wait, his bed. Wait, how many? Three. Okay. Well, you know, right. just in case they didn't believe the first two, uh, right. there had to be a third can, one. Uh, can I take a stab at, at some of those notes? Somebody took a stab at him, but now keep going. Well, yeah. Dear life. I've accomplished everything I've ever set out, so I'm going to kill... No, that's not going to work. Uh, I have not impressed my wife as a lover, so let me kill... No. So why in the... I mean, which which letter do you read first? Which one do you believe? Which one is... Well, the, I mean, that's bullshit. Who writes three suicide letters? Well, the first one was, I have decided to kill myself. Help, help, there's a guy standing behind me. No. <laughs> Said to scratch that out. Second one was... 
Goodbye, world. I've decided to help. They're going to kill him. They're forcing me to do this. No, that didn't work. There's a gun to my head. He was found lying in a pool of blood with a single bullet wound to the right temple from a thirty-eight caliber revolver found grasped in his right hand. Oh, bullshit. Yes. Uh, So he had uh, been suicided, I guess we could say. Now, and I think it was it was officially called a suicide, as far as as any investigation was go- as allowed. I think it was ruled a suicide. Yeah, I, I think it was too. Yeah. I don't know if any evidence ever came out to the contrary, but it certainly looks suspicious. Around about right. the same time, Philby's controller in Madrid, Alexander Orlov, also defected uh-huh. his Soviet controller. Oh shit! Um, but. To protect his mm-hmm. family, who was still living in the USSR, he said nothing about Philby, and Stalin respected the deal. Ah, gotcha. Yes, I will defect, but I won't give up anything. Please don't have me suicided. Or my family killed. Or my family, but yeah, 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 yeah. So, in 1939, Philby returned to London, and he goes to work at the Times office. Uh, this is in July. Now, when British de- uh, Britain declares war on Germany in September 1939, his contact with his Soviet controllers is lost. Um, yeah, I would imagine because it's complete clusterfuck uh, throughout the Roman uh, Empire, if you will. The Roman Empire, really? Yeah. The Roman shit, fuck, damn, no, the fucking Russian Empire. Oh, my God. Please bleep all those bad words out. Oh, my God, we're doing too many shows. And we're about to start another one. Anyway, the Soviet Union. I apologize. <laughs> when World War II <laughs> broke out, <laughs> his uh, <laughs> contact I can't believe I said Roman with the Soviet anyway. controllers was lost. And according to KGB files, uh, he was worried, Philby this is, that any secrets he provided to the Soviets about the British Expeditionary Force and the French Army might now be passed on to the Germans after wow. they signed the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact. He was kind of Good point. he was kind of quite pissy about the, the deal between Hitler <laughs> and Stalin. He said to his controller, apparently, "What's going to happen to the single front struggle against fascism now?" Because that's mm. what he thought he was fighting for. That's why he became a spy was to fight the fascists, but now the Soviets are in bed with the fascists, and he was yeah. quite disenchanted and broke off contact. And Well, I imagine, yeah. Go I was going to say, and the, and the Soviets had enough on their plate anyway, so, yeah, it, it kind of, they went quiet for a while. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I mean, he's faking his entire life for these people and they suddenly get into the bed with the people that he's been, that he has dedicated his life to fighting. I mean, how does that not mess up your head and you get um, uh, and a lot of despair? We know how Burgess is going to handle it with a bunch of alcohol, sex, and not all of the sex was <clears throat> consensual or whatever. But yeah, Burgess was a mess. But yeah, this must have really messed with all of these guys. They must have questioned everything they thought they knew. The other side is that these guys had been so successful in sending information. And look, seriously, here we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands mm. of top yeah. secret documents. They had On a been, regular daily basis. Yeah, they've been yeah. photographing and sending to the Soviets. They were so successful that the Soviets were seriously worried that these guys were running counter-espionage. 
They, they, there are KGB files to back this up. The Soviets during the 30s were worried that the Cambridge Five were actually British intelligence agents <laughs> right. trying to infiltrate and pass you know, bad intelligence to the Soviets because they thought there's no way they could be this successful <laughs> and the British haven't worked it out yet. The, the Soviets right. were absolutely scratching their heads going, this can't be for real. There's no way they could be getting away with all of this intelligence that they're sending to us and the Brits wouldn't have worked it out by now. There's got to be something wrong here. There's, they, they, these right. guys have got to be dodgy. And so uh, when Phil be arced up about the Millen Blah 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 Pact, <laughs> Ribbentrop-Molotov <laughs> Pact, they, they uh, decided to cut him uh, out and leave him in the cold. Wow. Yeah. And I'm not going to give too much away because I'm sure we'll get into this later. But the way it worked in the British um, Secret Service or whatever you want to call it, the, the, the Secret Services, um, once you were in, you were in and you had access to other stuff, not just <clears throat> your responsibilities. So these guys and Philby and uh, Burgess talk about this literally at the end of each day, they would just grab a, the, the best of whatever came in that day that was decoded, whatever, throw it into a briefcase, pack a briefcase, walk out for that night, and they would give it to their handler who would make copies or whatever. They bring it in the next day and put it back in the files. I mean, nobody was checking stuff at the door. Nobody was suspicious of these guys, and they were able to get access to other departments. I mean, it was very loose once you got inside, the British aren't going to tighten it, tighten that up until the, uh, the beginning of the Cold War. But these guys could get their hands on almost anything and give it to the Soviets. So the Soviets literally had almost like a newspaper version of what was going on secretly as far as the British government is concerned. It, it's truly astounding what they were able to pass over the quality and quantity. I read that Stalin knew what was going on uh, in sort of from a British intelligence foreign office perspective, faster than Churchill did. And the ambassador to the British ambassador to Moscow, Cripps, Stalin knew what he knew before he knew it. And we're going to get into that later because that's going to play a huge part of the Ribbentrop uh, thing when we get to Burgess. But yeah, I mean, they, they literally said, okay, what's, what's, you know, what did we learn today? And they would have to have meetings about it because these guys were passing over a shit ton of documents. And well, but you know, back in England, there were all these layers of personnel and bureaucracy and org charts before something could get up to Churchill uh, but stuff going <laughs> to Soviet was going straight to Stalin. Well, to Barrier and, and Stalin's inner circle, but pretty much right. all of this stuff was straight on Stalin's desk in the morning yeah. for him to read because it was obviously, you know, secret spy intelligence. So Staggering. Stalin was getting it faster than Churchill. It's amazing. But anyway, so um, but at this point, 40, the uh, Soviets have decided that Philby's finished. He's left out in the cold. And he just keeps going well on his own stuff. Yeah. So in 1940, he's given a job at the War Office, and he's appointed as an instructor in the art of clandestine propaganda at the right. SOE's training facility. The SOE was the Special Operations Executive. Right. It was set up to conduct espionage, sabotage, and reconnaissance in occupied Europe against the Axis powers. It was top, top, Top secret. Yeah. The people who worked for it were sometimes referred to as the Baker Street Regulars after its uh, location, or the, after the location of its London headquarters, which was 64 Baker Street, 
<laughs> just up the road from 221 Baker Street, which is where Sherlock Holmes lived. They did run into nice. each other uh, on the street. Uh, so Baker Street, they were also, the SOE guys were also known as Churchill's Secret Army or, and I love this, the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. I like that, yeah. That is so fucking badass. Uh, that reminds me of something like out of a Warren Ellis comic. It was a joke that the that SOE stood for Stately Homes of England <laughs> because they ran their operations in a large number of uh, estates and, and country houses. Nice. And, and just to give everybody an idea, what it is is Churchill's like, okay, we can attack mainland Europe militarily. What are all the other ways we could possibly attack? We can hurt Hitlerism. We can affect him, whatever. And so the idea was to get you know in touch with locals who weren't happy, like you were saying, create sabotage, um, mess with the economy, mess with resources, that kind of stuff. So hurt them as much as we can in every way we can, except for militarily, because that's going to have to come later once the Americans are involved. So again, Churchill was just doing whatever he could to affect some kind of trouble for Hitler and mainland Europe. Well, in fact, uh, Churchill ordered the SOE to set Europe ablaze. Nice. He was pissed. Yeah, yeah. espionage, sabotage, get in there and uh, fuck shit up ahead of our armies, destabilize. <laughs> that was his, their actual mission was fuck shit up. I want you to go in there and fuck shit up. Oh, very good. Not a bad uh, Churchill, you. buddy. Uh, okay, I just pulled it out. Yeah, yeah, I've, I know. I've seen it. Uh, now, Churchill <laughs> modeled SOE on the IRA. <laughs> they were effective. Well, yeah, not not effective enough, but effective-ish. No, yeah. no. But when it comes to terror, they did a pretty decent job. Yeah. Now, yeah. fascinating is the BBC was also involved in the SOE. I'm always fascinated when I read these stories about the role that media organization have played in spycraft mm -hmm. uh, during the war the bbc would broadcast its radio to almost all of the axis occupied countries and yeah. uh it would include coded personal messages in its broadcasts uh, sometimes in lines of poetry or nonsensical stories uh, that had messages for, you know, spies, SOE spies that were out there. Uh, it's fascinating stuff. We should do a whole episode on coded messages in cool. uh, stories like that. Um, and you got to wonder, has that ever stopped? I, every time I see news broadcasts yeah. or radio today, I'm wondering, are there coded messages in here? I mean, obviously, no, we know the lizard people are sending coded messages out and, uh, you know, they're, they're programming our brains through alien lizard hypnosis using the mainstream well, media. yeah, that's a given. That's, we understand that, but, on t uh, but yeah. is there another layer of coding, I'm wondering, in, in right. the messaging? I guess we'll find out one day. What, what is the, um, the radio, the, the, ch the channel, the signal that the United States sends out all over the world? Um, Armed or Forces of America? I can't Air America? Is, but uh, yeah. Air America, yeah. So I imagine the uh, U.S. has got stuff going out because no one's, you know, squeaky clean. Everybody, queen, like shit, squeaky clean. Everybody does stuff they shouldn't do, and uh, I'm sure America's doing stuff that everybody else has done. And we're just doing it today. Well, company uh, countries like America have deliberately used uh, media as a means of 
trying to destabilize uh, countries right. that they're trying to where they're trying to overthrow the government um, by publishing their own classic sort of CIA tactic by publishing newspapers or radio stations that you put just over the border and you're broadcasting in there television either direct or indirect there's a lot of different ways that you can use the media to destabilize a country you can run propaganda you know by pushing something offshore into that country you can uh, use uh, monetary influence with the people that own the networks or the journalists working in them the producers to get them to feed certain stories in or you can do it this way which is a little bit more surreptitious where you code stories in but when you when we see people like Castro or Putin or even Chavez in Venezuela before he passed away, complaining about American infiltration of the media companies and needing to have state-owned or state-controlled oh. media, it gets portrayed here as well. They're just right, spun. they're anti. Yeah, you're trying to control the people. Yeah, yeah. we yeah. have freedom of the press here. Really? Yeah. How many presidential candidates did you have in the presidential debate yesterday? How many? How many candidates? Too. How many presidential candidates are there in this presidential election? At least four. Yeah. Why were there only two on the TV? Um, Power, control, influence, and and keeping the other people out. I'm guessing. I believe that there is actually, and I may be wrong on this, I haven't fact-checked this, but I did hear recently that there is legislation in place in the U.S. Mm. that uh, states that only the two major parties can provide presidential candidates for televised presidential debates. Uh, Now, I did hear something in the news that someone was trying to, you know, get support for a bill, a proposed bill, where if you're polling at least 3 to 5%, uh, like the libertarians are trying to do, that they, they could be a part of the debate. But yeah, I mean, if you're a Democrat or Democrat or Republican and you hate each other, the last thing you're going to do is allow a third party and you will join forces at least you know long enough to make sure no one else gets in on your little party of running the freaking country. Yeah. So that's not going to happen anytime but soon. But my point is, in the West, we think we have free media, but yeah. the, the, the free, the, the, we have freer media maybe, but it's still a bit of... But the reason why yeah. guys like Castro and Putin and Chavez are suspicious about American infiltration of the media is because this has happened. This is, this is not Absolutely. they're just fucking paranoid. This has been <laughs> a deliberate tactic that's been used, as we can see here, going back to World War II and before. So using the media to send spy messages or to, to uh, communicate propaganda to a country to try and destabilize a country in its political system is uh, a tried and tested tactic that's been going on forever. Right. But so back to the SOE. So um uh la, 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 la. oh, so back to the BBC. They would use these right. messages to announce the safe arrival of an agent or a message in ah. London or to code instructions for an operation to be carried out on a given date. They would also sometimes use it, and did use it actually, to mobilize resistance groups in the hours before Mm -hmm. Operation Overlord. So it was, uh, you know, very sophisticated the way the BBC was part of this spying operation. SOE, by the way, also pioneered the use of plastic explosives. Thank you. 
Now, the leader of the French section of the SOE was Colonel Maurice James Buckmaster OBE. I'm sorry. That's an awesome name. Somebody who knew Buckmaster personally was Ian Fleming, who was the personal assistant at the time to Rear Admiral John Godfrey, the Director of Naval Intelligence of the Royal Navy during World War II. And apparently Ah. Fleming used Buckmaster as the basis of M in the James Bond books. And the chief of SOE's technical branch, Charles Beauville, ended up in the Bond books as Q. So there you go. That's how the SOE has survived. Yeah, That's pretty cool. Now, Philby's new role at SOE uh, prompted the OGPU, which was part of the NKVD. All these... uh, Three-letter and yeah. four-letter acronyms, acronyms man. Yeah. NKVD being the Soviet secret police again. Uh, they were like, holy shit, remember that Philby guy? <laughs> He's now <laughs> like involved in their bloody spy operation thing over there. We need to get in contact with him again, which they did. Now, Damn. Philby there uh, in this role was able to provide Stalin with advance warning of Operation Barbarossa. Mm-hmm. And of the Japanese's intentions to strike Singapore instead of right. uh, attacking the USSR, as Hitler had urged. Now, when Stalin got the warning from Philby about Barbarossa, he didn't believe it, as we know. Even when Philby told him, he just thought, you know, it was some sort of yeah. a provocation. He didn't take it seriously. But uh, when he got the second warning about the Japanese. Uh, going to divert forces away from the USSR and strike Singapore. According to some sources, uh, when that was confirmed by a spy in Tokyo, it uh, gave... Richard Sorge. Sorge, that's right. It gave Stalin uh, the idea to move troops from the Far East uh, in time to to, to support Zhukov in the counter-offensive around... Moscow. Now, do you know if that story is is legit or has that been discredited? I read a couple of different versions. Right. Well, yeah. Let me let me give you that and, and drill down a little further because this is this is amazing. So, um, and I'll and I'll break it down. But basically, when Operation Barbarossa is about to start, and Philby and others are telling Stalin that um, that uh, the Germans are about to attack him. Not only does Stalin not believe this, he has blamed Molotov for fucking up relations with the Germans. Stalin absolutely is convinced. He has convinced himself this is not coming from anybody else. This is his own um, psychological makeup. And you and I have already discussed numerous examples of why Stalin doesn't trust Churchill. Delaying the second front, uh, Stalin had wanted Churchill to send uh, British troops to Soviet Russia after Barbarossa gets started and he's going to he's going to already know that Churchill's not going to do that. Stalin was absolutely convinced that when Philby says, "Hey, you're about to be attacked by the Germans." Stalin really believed that Philby himself was being lied to by someone in London and what was really was going to happen was that not only was Germany going to attack um, Soviet Russia sometime in the future, but the Britons were going to join them. They were going to have a joint attack against them side by side. And so when Philby says you're about to be attacked by the Germans, Stalin believes it's a cover up for the joint attack that's about to 
come against him sometime in the future, but that Philby himself was being tricked, was being duped, was being a double agent. He just didn't know any better. So Stalin absolutely refused to believe that the Germans were about to turn on their on their comrades um, and, and attack them. And the other thing is when the Japanese are deciding to go to the south as opposed to attacking Russia, Stalin doesn't want to believe that at first, but he ends up believing it because between May and September of 1939, General Zhukov had bitch-slapped the Japanese forces along the Manchurian-Mongolian border for a couple of months to such a point that the Japanese totally backed off, which allows Stalin to believe that the Japanese are not coming at them, and he's able to take all of those experienced troops that Zhukov had trained and used to fight the Japanese and move them to um, to Moscow to help with the Russians, because the Russians are right outside the uh, the suburbs of Moscow in December of 1941. So Stalin for all of his practicality, his his, uh, uh, his intelligence, there were some things about him. He was flawed, just like everybody else, and he truly had his own version of the events. He absolutely did not trust Churchill. And when we get on to Burgess, I've got some even more incredible examples where Stalin just, he hates Churchill. He doesn't trust him. And he's the one he considers the most intelligent, the most dangerous between himself, between uh, Churchill and uh, FDR. But Stalin is going to refuse to believe Churchill would ever want to help him in any way, shape or form. And it just it just really does affect by the time we get to Malta, their relationship. Mm. I know that was a lot of information, but it makes sense later. <laughs> I hope. So, Philby is still with the Times in France in 1940. He gets out just ahead of the Germans invading France. Um, mm-hmm. I like this. He, uh, as, when he gets back to uh, London, he files an expense account for belongings he lost when he right. fled France. Uh, Don't tell me. Okay. No. I, I, are you about to say the camera? No. Was it the camera? Okay, I, just, I, started I lost my I secret lost spy, spy camera, camera that the Soviets get. No, it's just as cool though. His expense account: a single thing, Dunhill pipe, two years old, but all the better for it. One pound ten shillings. That's what he lost. His pipe. He's got. He's got priorities. He's an Englishman, for God's sake. Give him back his pipe. No wonder he looked like an ideal recruit for MI6. The only thing he wanted to complain about was his pipe. Bloody hell, I lost my pipe somewhere along the way. Yeah. yeah. Now, by September 1941, Philby is working for Section 5 of MI6, which is responsible for offensive counterintelligence. Nice. Let me say that again. The Soviet spy (laughs) is working for MI6 in the division that's responsible for counterintelligence. Ah. Now, because of his first-hand experience with Franco and Spain, he's put in charge of the section of Section 5 that deals with Spain and Portugal. Uh, during 1942-43, to his responsibilities are expanded to include North Africa and Italy, and he has made the deputy head of Section 5 under nice. Major Felix Calgill, who was an army officer who had been uh, seconded to uh, MI6. Now, in late 44, Philby gets instructions from his KGB handler to get himself promoted to replace Cowgill as head of Section 5. And uh, he succeeds. 
Now, I did read a little about that. Philby pretty much asks his handler, he goes, you don't want me to have him wiped out, do you? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And no, and the, uh, the, the Soviet handler pretty much says, no, 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 just use inner office politics to get him removed and have you replace him. Because again, Philby is not the kind of person who can be involved in killing somebody. He couldn't help kill Franco. He can't help kill this guy. He's an idealist. He is trying to help, you know, uh, Soviet Russia because he's a Marxist. He's trying to help the common person. But as far as murder, that's beyond the pale. But like you said, he does manage to get the position for himself. He now has access to all, to so many different departments again, because of the loose structures within their secret service, the secret service umbrella. And again, all of this information on a very regular basis is heading to Moscow just as quickly as it can can be sent. So let's stop and just consider this for a moment. In 1944, late 1944, the man running British operations against the (laughs) Russians in the early years of the Cold War was a Russian spy. Damn. Now... Yeah, that is one of the coolest things I've ever heard. Like, that is astounding levels of infiltration. Astounding. Yeah. And the British were fucking clueless. Absolutely true. Now, here's a here's a question I wanted to ask. I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, So from from. December 2nd, 1941, when Germany attacks uh, Russia and British, the Britons and uh, Russia become allies. Obviously, that's going to take some time to jail. The Britons are sending information and supplies to Soviet Russia. They are giving, not everything, obviously, but they're giving information to Soviet Russia. So, to a degree, your spies are doing pretty much the same thing that your government is doing. They're just send, you know, the government's sending information to Stalin. The spies are sending information to Stalin. They're probably sending better information, probably on a more regular basis. There's certain things that they weren't sending, like Ultra, which was uh, Britain's ability to, to read the mail, and they weren't sending information about the atomic program yet. But the point is, I mean, the spies are pretty much doing what the British government itself is doing because now Soviet Russia is their ally, at least during this war. So I just found it ironic that they're parallel, paralleling the work, if you will. Everybody's sending something to Russia. It's just that one's doing it legitimately and the other one's doing it covertly. Yeah, and that was part of the justification that Philby and Burgess would give later on in life uh, after they'd been outed. They would say, look, well... Everybody leaks information. I think Burgess mm-hmm. himself said that Churchill, when he was uh, before he was prime minister, would leak information to try and destabilize uh, the uh, leadership of Chamberlain. Uh, and when he was in opposition, he leaked information to destabilize the government of the day. Everyone leaks information to other parties. Uh, so what we did wasn't that different. That was part right. of their justification. Um so anyway, the guy running what? Yeah, just just one more thing. Uh, the, and I apologize. The British hand, the uh, Soviet handler was asking Philby over and over and over again. We want you to give us information about Soviet agents 
who have been turned or British agents who have penetrated mm. our espionage. And he just kept saying, no, there is no one. There's no, there's no such agents. There's nothing going on here. And Stalin, of course, with his mentality, refused to believe that. So the handler kept asking Philby that, which was driving him crazy. He's like, I don't know of anybody who has broken into your spy ring or who is spying on you. I would tell you, I guess, I, we don't know what the truth is, but he was not giving them any information. And that helped cause some friction between his handler and Philby himself. Yeah, they'd always been suspicious, as I said before, because of the quality and quantity of the stuff that Philby was sending them. Yeah. So they always were a little bit suspicious. This is just too good. Yeah. There is a pack. There was a plan to have him whacked at one stage, but they decided the information was too good. They couldn't. They couldn't do it. Right. Uh, I'm talking about uh, the KGB were thinking about having him whacked. Uh, because mm-hmm. they were that was they were so suspicious. They they were thinking. Yeah, how could killed, you not yeah. be cutting him yeah. off or having him whacked? Anyway, so just making that point again, the guy running British intelligence <laughs> against the Russians in the early part of the Cold War worked was working for the mole. Russian himself. No wonder so few British plans worked, and also no wonder so many Western <laughs> agents who slipped behind the Iron Curtain were never heard of again. Yeah. Again, if you read uh, Tim Weiner's book on the CIA, he makes a big point of this. The Soviets at the beginning of the Cold War were so much better at spying than the British mm-hmm. or the Americans that the uh, West didn't have a chance. Every time the right. CIA would send somebody into Soviet Russia or Korea or any one of these places to try and <laughs> infiltrate... They would literally disappear seconds later. They would, <laughs> right. and this happened over and over and over again. They would parachute into the country in the dead of night and just go off the radar permanently. <laughs> They're never heard of again. Uh, I mean, it's the equivalent of reading someone's email, texts, <laughs> everything. I mean, they just knew everything that was going on that was worth knowing. Yeah, it's like the NSA. Yeah. Um, right. In not, in, Who I respect and admire greatly. And we'd like to say hi to our friends at the NSA. We know you are listening. <laughs> And really, like, seriously, you be. don't have anything better to do? Yeah. Fuck off. Yeah. Um, maybe they're learning. Well, maybe, yeah. Maybe. In August 1945, uh, another NKVD agent, who was also vice consul in Istanbul, Konstantin Volkov, mm. requested political asylum in Britain for himself and his wife. Uh, he was offered a very large sum of money by the Brits, and he offered the names of three Soviet agents inside Britain, two who he said worked in the Foreign Office and a third who worked in counter-espionage in London. Damn. I think that might be Burgess, Blunt, and Philby, but at the very least, it's Philby. Well, yeah, and so British intelligence were very excited about the opportunity to learn the names of these three people, so they put so what do they do? They put their top man on the job, <laughs> Philby. They gave Philby the job of going to Istanbul to sit right. down with Volkov and find out the names of these Russian spies that had Damn. infiltrated the Foreign Office and their counter-espionage. So he jumped on department. the first plane dashed down there. No, I'm no, he no? wasn't in that much of a hurry. Can you imagine <laughs> the the fortitude, the balls it takes to have your bosses yes. say, um, Philby, old son, 
Uh, turns out there's a Russian chap in Istanbul who believes there's a spy working in our department. A Russian spy. Can you believe it, old chap? I shock us. I say, shock. old son, that's that's mighty distressing. What do you want us to do? Oh, what are we going to do? Well, feel me, old son, I want you to go to Istanbul and, uh, you know, interview him, see what you make of it. Could be a load of claptrap, who knows, but uh, he seems pretty sure of himself. Rightio. Get to the bottom What 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 was the fellow's name then? Konstantin Volkov. What address is he at in Istanbul? 221 fucking Istanbul Street. Oh, okay then. Well, uh, listen, no, we'll get there. I've got a few things on at the moment, but my first possible opportunity, right. I will go to Istanbul. Rightio, chap. Rightio then. The, Ta-ta. The, <laughs> telling her the balls that he's got to have to have that conversation with a straight... So, of course, shoes. he immediately sends a message to his Soviet controller about Volkov, oh my God. makes a whole bunch of excuses uh, why he can't get there quickly, finally does <laughs> arrive in Turkey three weeks later, three weeks later, but Volkov... Three weeks? Three weeks later, but Volkov had already been uh, hurriedly captured, wrapped in Scampered. bandages... <laughs> And returned to uh, Moscow. Oh, God. Where he lived a very sh- short time? Yeah, uh, I don't really know Probably. what happened to him, but I'm okay. guessing so, yeah. Now, not on yeah. top of this... Yeah. Now, you this would look suspicious, right? Uh, you tell right. Philby that this guy's going to spill the beans. Drop Philby three takes three names, weeks yeah. to get there. By the time he gets there, the guy's been disappeared. However... Volkov's defection had been discussed with the British embassy in Ankara on telephones that were found to be tapped by Soviet intelligence. Lucky bastard. So Philby escapes detection. The Brits go, oh, well, the Soviets knew about it because they'd tapped our phones when we talked about it. It it wasn't our man Philby, I can tell you that. No, not Philby. Philby's a wonderful (laughs) chap. Totally trustworthy, Philby. So uh, Philby gets away, and not only does he get away with it, in 1946, Philby is awarded the OBE by the Queen for his services as a spy to Britain during the war. Hurrah! <laughs> I should Jesus. say, dun 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 God dun, save the Queen dun, or whatever dun. it's Oh, that's American, isn't it? No, no, no that's no, British. Got it right. No, that's fucking French. Yeah. <laughs> sure, we got a mix up. That's too my, many podcasts. Too many say, it's my, yeah, it's my Napoleon fucking theme. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, <laughs> in 1949, just to wrap up the Philby section, yeah. Philby is promoted to be the British Secret Service's liaison officer in Washington, dealing with the CIA oh, and the FBI. Of course he is. So now, does he not only have direct access to British operations against Moscow, but to American operations against Moscow as well? Um, Of course, this involved their their atomic program, all of the Cold War operations, the containment policy, uh, all of this kind of stuff. Philby is getting it, giving it straight to Stalin. Jeez. So at the... Height of the Cold War, the very beginning of the Cold War, every move the West made against the communists was betrayed by Philby before it even began. Damn. Damn. And there's going to be, 
I'm sorry, I didn't want to... Are you ready to stop there? No, I've got a few more things to say. Okay, please go ahead. I was going to say, there is every possibility, had it not been for one mistake, Philby would have gone on to become CSS, Mm -hmm. the Chief of the British Secret Service. He would have been M. Yes. Now, there's a fucking plot for a Bond film. Where it turns out that M is, uh, you know, working for the communists. The KGB, if that had happened, the KGB would, in effect, have been running MI6. Yeah. Just staggering. Just like like you said, the first openings of the Cold War, Russia was doing it so much better. And we'll get into how they penetrated America later, whatever. But again, it's these people with ideals that the Soviets were able to take advantage of and get all this information. We're going to get into this later where I think it was 1944, Soviet Russia offers to pay. I'm just going to call it for right now, the Cambridge Four. It lets them know you have done so much for us. We are going to set up a life pension for you and we're going to start paying you right now. And you're not going to believe the response from all four of these men. When they're offered money. Mm. Now, the only reason I said there was this one mistake that stopped Philby becoming the head of MI6, and it really had nothing to do directly with Philby. He played a very tight game. But in Washington, he shared a house with Guy Burgess, Mm -hmm. who was, as we know, another KGB agent uh, working at the time for the British Foreign Office. And then through a series of events, one of their other colleagues, Don McLean, uh, and McLean had to flee. He was about to get captured. He had to flee to Moscow. Burgess went with him because Philby shared a house with Burgess. Philby came under suspicion, and it kind of ruined his chances of getting promoted to the top job. Nothing happened. He didn't get arrested, but he was under enough suspicion that it kind of muddied the waters uh, around his career prospects. He's... lingered on as a spy until 1963 another 12 years after Burgess and McLean went to Moscow Um, he was doing freelance work for MI6 in Beirut undercover as a journalist until the KGB finally uh, fearing that the British and the CIA had enough evidence against him that they might kill him Uh, brought him to Moscow, where he spent the rest of his life. Now, I was going to go out of this episode with an interview with Philby that Uh uh, the British did in 1955. Um, If you've got something you want to say before that, do it now or forever hold your peace. Right. What what it is, is it's one of the many interesting examples of what Stalin knows before Yalta even starts. But since we haven't done Yalta yet, um, I'll just keep it. Because uh, it's just it's just an amazing story. The the depth of knowledge of what Stalin knew before Yalta even got started. Exactly. So this is an interview I found with Philby, a very rare interview with Philby. It's from 1955. Now, just reminding you where this is on the timeline, Burgess and McLean fled to Moscow in 51. Mm-hmm. So this is four years later. Philby... Uh, Still working as a spy under suspicion yeah. because of his relationship still, with Burgess. Here is the interview, and then we'll uh, wrap it up. Mr. Harold Philby on the right holds a press conference to deny charges that he was involved in the disappearance of Burgess and McLean. 
The 43-year-old former Foreign Office diplomat has challenged his accuser, an MP, to repeat the charges outside the Commons. Mr. Philby, Mr. McMillan, the Foreign Secretary, said there was no evidence that you were the so-called third man who allegedly tipped off Burgess and McLean. Are you satisfied with that clearance that he gave you? Yes, I am. Well, if there was a third man, were you, in fact, the third man? No, I was not. You think there was one? No comment. Well, Mr. Philby, the disappearance of Burgess and McLean is almost as much of a mystery today as it was when they went away about four years ago or more. Can you shed any light on it at all? No, I can't. In the first place, I'm debarred by the Official Secrets Act from saying anything that might disclose to unauthorized persons information derived from my position as a former government official. In the second place, the Burgess-McLean affair has raised issues of great delicacy in the sphere of international affairs. I left the service some four years ago, and I haven't any means of knowing whether words of mine, perhaps lifted from context, perhaps even garbled as they sometimes have been, wouldn't uh, severely prejudice or damage the government in its conduct of international affairs. Uh, Mr. Philby, you were asked to resign yourself from the Foreign Office a few months after Burgess and McLean disappeared, and Mr. McMillan has said that you had had communist associations. Is that why you were asked to resign? I was asked to resign from the Foreign Office because of an imprudent association with Burgess, and as a result of his disappearance. So Beyond that, I'm afraid I've got no further comment to make. Can you say when your communist associations ended, if I assume they did? The last time I spoke to a communist, knowing that he was a communist, was sometime in 1934. That right. And they do another take of those questions. Mr. Philby, you were asked to resign yourself from the Foreign Office a few months after Burgess and McLean disappeared, and the Foreign Secretary has said that in the past you had had communist associations. Is that why you were asked to resign? I was asked to resign because of an imprudent association. That was your association with Burgess? Correct. What about these alleged communist associations? Can you say anything about them? Uh, the last time I spoke to a communist, knowing him to be a communist, was sometime in uh, 1934. That rather implies that you have also spoken to communists unknowingly and you now know about it. Well, I spoke to Burgess last in April or May 1951. He gave you no idea that he was planning to go. Never. Uh, would you still regard Burgess, who lived with you for a while in Washington, would you still regard him as a friend of yours? How do you feel about him now? I consider his action deplorable. On the subject of friendship, I prefer to say as little as possible, because it's very complicated. Do you have any other reason for keeping silent, Mr. Philbin? I have. Uh, the efficiency of our security services can only be impaired if their uh, organizations and techniques are discussed in public. I'd like to ask you one more question, Mr. Philby. Uh, the Foreign Office asked you to resign because of your imprudent association, as you called it, with Burgess. Do you think that was fair? I understood perfectly well their reasons for doing so. <laughs> How awesome is that? 
Balls of steel. Balls of oh steel. Oh my god. And it's, I've never spoken to a communist and uh, I can't say any more because state secrets, baby. State security. Well, and also, yeah. Uh, and, he, and if anybody should know about how bad it would be for, to leak information and processes, yeah, he would know. So yeah, he's going to keep his mouth shut, probably keeps his pension, doesn't go to jail. So he, for all intents and purposes, got away with it. And as we'll see in uh, the next episode, uh, Philby was the one who tipped off Burgess and McLean that they were about to get pinched and uh, it was part of the plan for them (laughs) to get out of Dodge and get to Mexico. So he knew everything about it. He was the one that recruited them, as I said earlier, to working for the NKVD. But just, you know, so calm, so very British, stiff upper lip, doesn't flinch. That's a video that you can see on YouTube. You can see him doing the talking. I'll put it up on our site or on Facebook after this. Um, You should see it. It's like totally amazing, man. He's like a complete fucking pro. Wow. And that's where we're going to wrap up this episode. Next episode, we're going to go into detail about Guy Burgess and Donald McLean. The other two guys that are most famous uh, out of the Cambridge Five. Mm-hmm. Talk to you then, buddy. So, oh, no, 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 you're going to talk to me now. You wanted to do some shout outs? Oh, shit. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, we don't have any reviews, but I did mention on an earlier episode Bastards. that people that have been sharing our Cold War post yes. on Facebook deserved a thank you gift. Um, so, uh, Lucas. Gendron, G-E-N-D-R-O-N. Uh, shoot us an email, email at a coldwar.com with your address details, and we will send you a thank you gift. Also, Tristan Twance. Tristan, uh, same goes for you. Email at a coldwar.com. Thank you for sharing Trist. our poster on Facebook. Anyone else, if you want to be in the running for that, just uh, you know, share one of our posts about our podcasts or something yeah. on the, on your on your feed. Say, hey, this is a great show. You should check it out. It's uh, blah blah blah. Write a little note. Share it on Facebook, and we'll, you'll be in the running for a gift too. Um, shit, we're running too late to answer Paddy Turner's question. Paddy, I know we've been delaying this for like several episodes. Sorry, your DefCon two question. We just keep running out of time, but um, we will get to it. We haven't forgotten you, Paddy. No, no. Paddy most in my mind. (laughs) All right. Now we're out. Now we're out. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.